0: The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.TheWellHastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. I'm going to begin in verse 16 of Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold, or silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Let me pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we're we're grateful. And if we're not grateful this morning, God, help us to be grateful for your word. What a blessing it is to come together as a group of people to not just hear your word read, but to hear it preached. And Father, I asked God that you would give us a posture um, where our ears are open and our hearts are open to you. I ask, Father, that you would give us a posture of desiring to draw close to you as you draw close to us, and a posture that desires to um, learn and listen and, quite frankly, uh, repent of uh, places in our lives where we have given our lives over to the worship of, of false gods. God, I pray that you would do this work, And I pray that as you do that, Father, that you would bring us to the foot of a bloody cross uh, where your son gave his life for us. That you would bring us to the doorway of an empty tomb where we can once again take courage in the victory that was won on our behalf over Satan, sin, and death. And that you would also um, give us a glimmer of hope again in the the truth of your return and the promise of eternity with you. I pray that you would do all this and, and then some. In Jesus name and everybody said amen 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 and hey, listen at first glance when you look at the text when you read this story um, I, I think it's easy to look at it through a lens of how to do evangelism um, and to be honest with you I, I've learned a lot from this passage over the years on the how to do evangelism you know how how to share your faith with others. When you have the Apostle Paul, obviously, um, in a, a very pagan uh, culture in Athens. And, and he definitely is sharing the gospel with a lot of unbelieving folks. And the way that he does it is very relational. And, it, and, it, and he does it in such a way that he uh, actually hones in on some of the themes in their culture and then uses those as, a, as an inroad to then share the gospel. So it is true that there's a heavy evangelistic focus in the text. And the reality is, all of the book of Acts has that focus as the gospel moves forward, as the believers preach that gospel, and as new believers are one and converted to Jesus. It's true. It's a very evangelistic, mission-driven book. So there, there's definitely would be many helpful things in the text uh, in terms of doing evangelism. Um, but I, I think, actually, that I don't think that's the reason that Luke put this in there. I don't think that he put this story in there thinking under God's inspiration, hey, there's going to be a bunch of Christians in America someday who need to know how to do evangelism. And so this is the story that God wants me to put in there for that. I don't think that was it. I think the thrust of the text, if you spend time with the language, the wording, the, the paragraphs, the, the characters in the story and all of that, you do some, some cross-referencing work on the culture of Athens and so on and so forth, I think you find that the thrust of the text is actually centered around repenting from idolatry. I think that's the major thrust of the text. That's the meaning of the text. Now, when we talk about idolatry, I think we get images in our head, right? Appropriately so, because idolatry all throughout the Bible, when you think of it, always has to do with some kind of imagery. Think of the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when this evil king, Nebuchadnezzar, wanted them to bow down and worship an image, a statue of himself. Um. Of course, if you know the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were like, heck to the no. In doing that. Like God can, most likely will, come and save us, and even if he doesn't, we'll die in the fiery furnace still worshiping Jesus, and then we know that, that Jesus shows up in the fire, and they don't get burned, and Nebuchadnezzar winds up writing a decree from that point forward um, for the whole nation to understand that, hey, we're going to let these believers worship their God because he's very powerful. That statement coming from a pagan king, right? And so so you, you, you have some imagery all throughout Scripture. That's just one story. There's, there's multiple. There's many. There's always images to, in some regard attached to idolatry. But the reality is I don't know that any of us in this room are going to go home today and we're going to pull a statue out of our closet and then get on our hands and knees and bow down to it, okay? We're probably not going to do that. But let's not forget that we do live in an image-driven society. Right. And I pick up my phone and there's images all over my phone. Open your computer, images. Turn the TV on, images, one after the other. And those images promise something usually. So Id- idolatry, um, again, I think because of the language of it and the imagery that we get can sometimes be hard for us to wrestle with. It can be, it can be a super elusive topic to tackle. Um... For some of us, and I'm going to try to build basically two categories that I think are going to help us wrestle with the text here in a minute. <clears throat> For some of us, our idolatry, our, our kind of peculiar pathway of idolatry, if you, you might say it that way, our kind of idolatry is, is probably laced with apathy, um, passivity, procrastination, I kind of stick your head in the sand That's one category, that kind of idolatry, right? Um, That kind of person or wiring or makeup or life philosophy, whatever it is, that kind of idolatry, um, if I'm in that camp, basically I would say, hey, I see what I'm supposed to do. I know I'm supposed to do X, Y, Z. But I'm going to refuse to do it. Because I either maybe don't like the difficulty of doing it or the pain associated with it or, or, or I really don't think it's going to change anything in the long run anyways. Nothing ever changes. That kind of a deterministic, I think is the right word, kind of life philosophy, right? That kind of idolatry, that camp, basically, if you zero it all the way down, worships the God of comfort. I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. It's Kind of what that comes down to. The other um, kind of camp or category that I want to create for us to think about, and again, I think you're going to see this in the text as we work our way through, so I want to build it up front so you have the imagery. The other camp, I think, is it's, it's, it's an idolatry that is kind of laced with Activism. Uh, performance, I'm going to get things done, right? I'm going to fix everything. Um, In some regard within that camp, there's a high pursuit of pleasure. Not that there's not a pursuit of pleasure in the other, but in this one, there's a real high pursuit of pleasure. I find a lot of pleasure in what I am doing and what I'm performing, and what I'm accomplishing, and the goals I'm nailing, and so on and so forth, right? So you could say you have really aggressive characters in this second camp, and you have really passive characters in the first. You could say that. Um, might be another way to think about it. That second camp, basically, if I'm in that camp, I, I see the things that I really should do, right? I-, I know that God is saying, do this, do this, do this. Don't do those things. Do this. And what happens is I wind up refusing to do what God has instructed me to do because I'm too busy pursuing and doing other things. But primarily what I'm doing is I'm pursuing the pleasure associated with doing those things. That kind of idolatry, to zero it down, if the first kind of idolatry worships at the feet of a false god that we would call comfort, this second camp worships at the feet of the false god of performance. It's my performance. Now you might notice that both of them are highly self-focused. The reality is idolatry, if you continue to zero down even past the things I've already said, idolatry revolves around the worship of self. The reality is that in the beginning, the reason that Satan rebelled and then fell and was tossed out of heaven was not so much that he was trying to get people's worship off of God, although that's it. It was that he was trying to get people to worship him. And if you did any research on um, Satanism and you listen to some of the Satanistic leaders today, yes, it is a thing. Some of those head leaders will tell you All Satanism is, is not trying to get you to worship Satan, it's trying to get you to worship yourself. Self-worship, I think, is at the core of our idolatry. What myself desires, what myself wants, becomes more important than worshiping the God of the universe who offers me freedom from the bondage that comes with that idolatry. Oftentimes, um, when you think about idolatry, and there's been scores of books written about it, so my, my struggle this morning is to hopefully lay out just enough food on the table to not only fill us a little bit, but also make you go, tomorrow I want to eat some leftovers and go do a little bit more research on this topic. It's so, it's so, I mean, the whole of the Bible is about idolatry, really, when you think about it, as opposed to the salvation that our God offers us, and the worship that he demands and deserves. So oftentimes, um, the idolatry that we struggle with, whether you're in Camp A or Camp B, the idolatry that we struggle with is typically deeply rooted in the culture that we are brought up in. We are shaped by the country we live in. We're shaped by the family of origin that we come from. And the reality is that every culture needs preachers to confront idolatry with winsomeness and courage. Okay? Now you think about the opposing team. The opposing team also needs preachers. And I think I've already talked about it, right? You've got social media. the News outlets, I think, are one of the biggest preachers of our day. I mean, they preach on the daily, don't they? Hour by hour, minute by minute. Um, again, our social media platforms, these are preachers. Newspapers, magazines, ads. These, they're proclaiming a message to you that promises joy, happiness, comfort, acceptance, prestige, respect. If you just drive this vehicle versus that vehicle. So on and so forth. And so the opposing team has definitely... Instilled preachers within our culture, and what's needed is preachers who will speak to that, right? And I think we have to remember if we're going to somehow capture all this in a short phrase, um, idolatry is simply anything that we mix um, with or, or, or elevate over the power of the gospel. That, that would be one way of talking about idolatry. You could say that idolatry is anything that we place our faith in. Anything we place our hope in, our trust in, outside the presence and the power of God. Any of that, that has become an idol that basically dictates to us how much time, talent, and treasure you're going to give to it. That's your worship. Make sense? Could be, could be a vocation, building a career. Um, could be friendships, trying to develop those friendships. Right? These are all good things. Vocation not bad, friendship not bad. What's bad is when they become the main focus of your life, and they take all of your time, all of your talent, all of your treasure. Is focused on that to the extent that you are not worshiping the Creator, you're worshiping the created objects. So vocation, friendship, marriage, right? I, Christy and I had a hmm, had a heavy conversation recently in. At some point, I think one or both of us were like, you know, what's actually happening here is we're kind of making our marriage an idol. Um, Trying to put each other in positions that only God should occupy. Expecting things of each other that only God can fulfill. Not that we shouldn't in a relationship expect purity, wholesomeness, commitment, all those sacrifice, all those things. There was just a realization, I think, at some point in our conversation. So marriage, marriage can quickly become an idol without, without even knowing it. Kids, if you got kids, kids can be an idol. And they make really poor idols, don't they? I, I, I see Eileen, the grandma in the room, like, amen, Joe. Kids can make really poor idols. The idea is that from that idol, you're trying to gain a sense of worth. Value. Uh, again, comfort or or acceptance. And the first time a kid goes, you're not my mom. (laughs) Oh, yeah. In those moments, you recognize, oh, I just made my kid into an idol. Am I trying to make my kid do something for me that only God can do for me? Right? So again, the list can range from all these things, family possessions, right, prestige and power, um, one of my longtime idols is intellectual superiority. Well, I just even love the way it sounds. <laughs> it's delicious. It's delicious. Intellectual superiority. It's sick. That's what it is. Okay. Philosophical wisdom. I mean, the list can go on and on and on. At the end of the day, regardless of the flavor of your idolatrous poison that you like to drink, Idolatry is really about what you do or do not worship through the giving of your time, your talent, and your treasure. And, and the reality is this, and, and I've already hinted at it, but I need to make sure I say it so I'm clear. All of those external versions of idolatry, the, the things that you can see, taste, touch, feel, all of those external things, they, they point to something internally inside of us called our core desires. And sometimes when I do marriage counseling or premarital counseling, I would take couples through a book that identifies core fears and core desires. And, and, and these are important. Um, we have core desires. They're not bad. God gave them to us. They're just twisted by sin. That's the reality. So those core desires that, that are attached um, oftentimes might be something like, again, the desire for comfort or the desire for control if you lived in a really abusive home growing up, you knew that you could not control the pain you experienced and so you sought to find control because life was out of control. It was chaotic. Um, The desire for acceptance, if you've been rejected a ton, betrayed, that desire for acceptance becomes this massive appetite that will consume anything in its pathway. It will control you, put you in chains. The desire for escape, desire to be respected. All of these core desires can, can basically drive our worship of those external false gods, okay? So again, setting the table for us before we dive into the text more deeply, with this on the table, the question becomes for us, before we even head to the text, the question is, who or what will I worship? Who or what have I been worshiping? Who or what am I prone to worship? Who or what will I give my life to? Will I sink my time, my talent, and my treasure into? So in light of the text, as you look at it, what you have to ask is this. It's a simple question. What kind of Athenian am I? Now, I'm sure y'all didn't wake up this morning going, what kind of Athenian am I? Because it sounds like a weird Star Trek name, right? I'm Athenian. Spock. Well, we're looking at Paul's ministry among the Athens, the Athenians, and so it made sense to just ask that question, what kind of Athenian am I? Because Paul is literally proclaiming the gospel to the Athenians, right? And a little bit of cultural understanding right before we dive in is this. The Athenians were historically known to be a pagan culture. And they valued philosophical knowledge, okay? Uh, if you do some background work on the, the, the city of a- Athens, when, when Rome took Athens over, they allowed Athens to remain their own free, sovereign city simply because there was a lot of history um, there. A lot of your major philosophers, Greek philosophers, came out of the city of Athens. Um, a lot of the philosophy, pagan philosophy of Zeus and so on and so forth um, comes there. And In fact, uh, we'll get to this later, but just side note, When Paul says in the text, hey, even your poets recognize this, he actually quotes Zeus, which is crazy. He quotes a pagan, quote-unquote, false god as he's delivering a sermon about worshiping false gods. Some fascinating things are going on there. Um, But while the the Athenians valued uh, their philosophical knowledge, they lacked practical wisdom. And, and we'll see that. At the end of the day, the Athenians basically fell into two different philosophical camps that we're going we're to spend more time on in a few minutes. But, but to set the stage one more time, the one side of the camp philosophically for them, in terms of this is, this is what life is all about, this is the mean of life. The mean of life for one camp is a pursue pleasure at all costs because you only have one life to live, and when you die, it's over. That's one camp. Um, very motivated people, built a lot of culture. The second camp was they stick your head in the sand and procrastinate about the problems you see because the reality is you cannot change the outcome of those things anyways. Change is an illusion, would be their philosophy. So the simple application for us as we study the text as we move forward is just to be aware. I want you to be aware of ways that you either spend your life pursuing pleasure or spend your life resisting change, okay? Those are the two camps. And you might fall into both of them sometimes. I think I do at times. And the reality is this, uh, whatever you have been passively ignoring or whatever you have been actively pursuing, you could ask those questions, what have I been ignoring? What, have, what kind of pleasures have I been pursuing? Just answering those simple questions on a piece of notebook paper could tell you an awful lot about who or what you are actually worshiping. Because the reality is, because of sin, we all have some worship dysfunctions inside of us and God would like to straighten those out so that we might worship him in spirit and in truth, rather than worshiping the false gods that we're prone to worship. To get there, to even get there, the reality is, your spirit needs to be provoked first. If your spirit is not provoked, if, if, if inside of you, you don't come to a place where you're like, this can't be anymore. I'm totally shocked that I would live in that kind of idol. If your spirit is not awakened and provoked with some kind of emotion, you'll never confront your idols. Right? You'll continue to pursue pleasure at all costs. You'll continue to stick your head in the sand. It's like somebody almost has to jump on the tracks in front of you and go, "Hey, hey! There's a train coming. Stand in the middle of the tracks." And you're like, "Whoa! Train! Oh, oh! This was so fun, though. I was enjoying chasing pleasure. Or this was great. I, I, I was just in front. I was just on the rear, and there was nobody else around. I was all by myself. I didn't have to do anything. Had to be woken up." And that's actually where the text begins, right? When you look at verses 16 through 21, the first thing you'll notice is that Paul's spirit is provoked. And sometimes, again, we all need someone to provoke us, to push us, to wake us up from our slumber. Make us take the plugs out of our ears so that we might hear. Or take the blinders off of our eyes so that we might be able to see the reality of what we're living in. And the false gods that we do worship and this is actually, again, where everything begins in our text today. Paul's spirit gets provoked. Again, pay attention to the text. Take, take note of how similar you and I are to the Athenians. Because at the end of the day, a provocation, I think, is the key to repentance. Nobody ever repented who just slept walked through life. And nobody ever repented that just continued to pursue all the pleasures this life can give them. Provocation is the key to repentance. You might notice in verses 16-21, if you look at it again with me, Paul's spirit is provoked. Why? Why does the text tell us? Why does Luke say his spirit is provoked? It's provoked, uh, Luke says in verse 16, because he saw that the city was full of idols. Even the phrase, full of idols, is this image of something Um, bubbling up over the top, so full that it can't even contain it anymore. To which one of the reformers said eons ago that the heart is like an idol factory. It's not like Walmart where it shuts down at 11 o'clock. It's a factory that runs 24-7, 365. And just as soon as you find one idol inside your heart, another one will spring up and take its place. Chasing down idols in our hearts is a day-by-day spiritual battle of fighting sin. His heart was provoked because he saw that the city was full of idols. What would it be like if we as believers wrestled with that image and just knew that our hearts were full of idols? That we wouldn't just hear one simple message on a Sunday and go, well, with an idol, I'm done now, I move on to practical evangelism. But what if we actually walked away and said, my heart is so stinking provoked right now. I'm so angry over this. I'm so broken over this because my heart is full of idols and I want to continue ripping them out so that I might worship the one true God. Now that would be like a revival, wouldn't it? So his heart was provoked for that reason. He saw a city full of idols. So much so that he responded to what he felt deep down inside by doing what? Well, he didn't pursue pleasure and he certainly didn't stick his head in the sand. He immediately began having conversations with other believers. That's where he went first. He went to the believers in the synagogue. He said, the text tells us he went to some ordinary folks in the grocery stores, basically in the marketplace, the gas stations. Started talking to people there about idolatry. That's what he's having conversations about. Then, starts talking to some of the highly educated philosophers at the college campus of Athens. That's a place where you're probably not going to catch me very much. Even though I did say that I really do like intellectual superiority, um, there are some college campuses that I kind of avoid because that's like pagan culture, right? There are some places I don't avoid. Right? I go to biker clubhouses all day, but a college campus, that's just weird for me. That's where Paul goes. And in the midst of that, Paul's response, he's responding to anger and frustration that he felt deep down inside. And his response to that anger and frustration caused him to go have these conversations about idolatry. And that then awards him an invitation to come preach in front of a council of of the top highest philosophers in Athens. That would have like scared the ever-living bejesus out of me. I don't even know what bejesus means, but it would scare it out of me, whatever that is. Okay? Just, just telling you, there's no comfort in going there. <laughs> and, and, the, and Luke is careful to tell us that these guys, these top-notch philosophers, highly paid dudes, these guys felt like Paul was a babbler. That's what they actually called him. They called him a babbler. And basically that he's presenting some weird new philosophy. At the end of the day, what they believed was that he probably had ripped this off of somebody else. Literally believing that Paul was a plagiarist. Couldn't really believe what he was preaching. Couldn't actually have been originated with him. He's just babbling about something. Now the interesting thing, and it's it's easy to miss, but if you look at verse 21, in response to the accusation of being a babbler, Luke adds this note in verse 21 regarding the Athenians. And he describes them as people who spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Luke's point here is yeah, like, yeah, okay, they just called Paul a babbler, but the reality is the Athenians are the real babblers, okay? They're top-notch philosophers with nothing to offer in terms of true restoration. The only thing they offered was those two categories. Go pursue pleasure at all costs. Oh, okay, uh, Or just go put your head in the sand procrastinate. It doesn't matter. You can't change nothing. It's all they had to offer, There's no life in that whatsoever. The leading philosophers, the wisest people in Athens, literally promised nothing. Again, it was the Epicureans, if you want to know, in the text that believed that you only have one life to live, and it all ends in death. Therefore, might as well live for all the pleasures of this world before you're extinct in death. And then the Stoics, they believed that God is in everything. They were basically pantheists. God's in the tree. God's in the chair. God's in my foot. They believed that God was in everything. Everything was predetermined. You can't change nothing. Everything is predestined. You can't change the destiny. might as well ignore the problems and live comfortably. Comfort was their God. So on the one hand, Paul's audience is half full of activists, right? They pursue pleasure as their God. On the other hand, his audience is half full of these really apathetic folks who just took whatever life throws at them without any thought towards real change, pretending like they hear, but never actually doing anything with what they heard. Both groups guilty of idolatry. Now think about the community again. Come back. I want you to come back to the culture and the community of Athens. I want you to get this image in your mind. All of this is taking place in a community that boasted a human population of 10,000 people. Roughly a third of the size of Hastings. Roughly. 10,000 people. Anybody wanna take a guess on how many idols had filled the city? 30,000. 30,000 graphic arts displays of images and statues of useless gods. <coughs> 10,000 lost people, 30,000 useless Gods in visual arts display. Now again, think about how many idols are present daily in our visual society. And how easy it is, we've grown up in this culture. How easy it is to be an idolater. And yet I don't think any of us really wants to walk around going, oh I'm going to dialogue my idolater. You know, it's, it's different than adulterer, just so you know. It's two different <laughs> words. Paul's spirit was provoked, was provoked because he saw that the city was full of dead people. He saw that the city was full of dead people who were worshiping at the feet of dead idols under the banner of human philosophy. Human philosophy is not bad. Again, one of them calls you to worship this vast array of idols by literally chasing whatever pleases you because pleasure is God. The other philosophy calls you to worship this vast array of idols by literally doing nothing, since transformation is an illusion. God is so far out of reach, it's too much hard work. The question is, do those idols sound familiar to you? Just do whatever pleases you. And don't do anything that is difficult or painful. Do whatever makes you happy. Don't worry about pursuing transformation. You can't do anything to really change who you really are. This is who you are. God created you this way. It's a load of hot crap. Because it forgets the part that we should talk about, which is how sin came and broke who God created us to be. Since you can't change who you really are, just stick your head in the sand. Just... Just embrace the pleasure. Embrace who you really are. Isn't this our culture in a nutshell? Aren't we saturated with this? All the messaging and imaging in our world is saturated with these two primary things. And I think what is needed, you know, when our heads and our hearts are full of this kind of foggy philosophical notion, um, we need somebody to preach the gospel to us. That's what we need to hear. The gospel is the power for salvation. The gospel is the power to freedom. And that's what Paul does. The second thing you see, Paul preaches the gospel to the Athenians in verses 22 through 31. Now, when you go back to this word about him being provoked, the original Greek word does mean provoked. I'm not playing a trick on you guys. The original Greek word that we render as provoked actually means this. It means to be disturbed over something. It means to be angry about something. It means to be enraged over something. And, and, and Paul is literally disturbed. He's angry and he's enraged because he has experienced the lie of idolatry. One commentator set it up like this. He said, hey, it's not just that Paul had some kind of a mental assent where he's like, oh, yo, look at all those. They're terrible. It wasn't that somebody just told him that and he finally ascended to a place of mentally being able to comprehend it. It was more like he actually experienced the horridness of it. So I was trying to think of like, how do you even take a room full of people and go, I want you to experience it. I don't just want you to merely mentally ascend to a place where you go, yeah, idolatry is bad. I really want your hearts to be provoked, enraged, and angry as you experience what true idolatry really is. And the problem is, I don't know how to help you experience that. And I'm hoping that by the time we get done with this sermon, the Lord will give us an opportunity for it. With his heart and his mind provoked by those emotions. Anger. I'm disturbed. I'm enraged. What does he do? He steps into the pulpit at the Eropagus and he preaches the gospel. And he begins with a really smooth introduction that catches the ears of his listeners, right? Hey, yo, I see y'all are kind of religious. And everybody's like, oh, really? You do? Oh, I'm listening. He moves on seamlessly but winsomely into this problem of idolatry and worship to an unknown god verse 23 he moves into a description of who god really is what god has really done on behalf of his creation right god is our creator and he has drawn near to his creation on top of giving us the ability to move nearer to him verses 24 through 27 and then after that he masterfully cites some of the athenians own poets their favorite poets that they would quote All of the time. In the midst of that, he actually uses their poets to make this point. God is the one who gives us our dignity and our value. Dignity and value can be found in nothing else outside of God alone. And yet, don't we try to find dignity and value in anything but God? How well I do my job. How well, I am a husband. Um, how my physique looks after going to the gym. Like it didn't, I don't know how many of you guys spend time in the gym. Looking around the room, you're about like me. But it's crazy if you go to the gym. You know how many people are standing in front of the mirror and be like, taking a picture, looking at it. Oh, no, that's bad. Do it again. It's just crazy. And all you're like, yeah, I've seen some of the pictures you posted. Joe, you should stop doing that. <laughs> touché. Touché. God gives us our dignity and our value. And and Paul says that he actually is the one who breathes life into us, why? Because we are his children. This is what a good father does for his children, breathes life into them. Breathes value into them, brings dignity to them. The dignity and the value and the life does not come in the child just being a child or you and I just being human. It comes because our Father gives us that. And what we do is we typically take the value and the dignity and the life that He gives us and when we trample all over it and we we crush it and we make it nasty and gross through our sin but primarily through our idolatry we try to find dignity and value and life in things that are created, but we're never meant to, so, quote unquote, last forever. We try to find our dignity, our value, and our life in those things, rather than in the creator of those things who gives the value, the dignity, and the life. So Paul goes there, right? And you can tell he's, he's kind of uh, turning a corner here in verse... Verse 29, he he drops this bomb regarding our sinful idolatry. He says we are, we're basically, we're guilty of turning God into creations of our own. Takes it a step further. It's not just that you're worshiping false gods. It's that you tried to refashion God into what you think he should be. And we do that when we pursue pleasure. Oh, God is very gracious. So it's, it's not so bad if I take that lustful look. He's very merciful. He will forgive me. He is forgiving. And what we've done is we've refashioned God into our own image. We've actually taken a piece of the truth. And we've left out the rest of the truth. It got us also a jealous God who expects purity because he is a pure God. We do this when we suck our heads in the sand too. We recreate God in our own image fashion we see the problems in our lives we see the sin we 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 get called out we get challenged people tell us hey yo that's wrong probably shouldn't do that it's not what god would expect of you it's destructive to your relationships or whatever right and we go yeah i've got better things to do i might get to that some other time god's patient he's kind that's true God is patient, and patience is a virtue. So God would be patient with us for however long it takes for us to continue repenting of things and actually getting after it. But the reality is there's there's a time when God's patience runs out, too. Because while God is a patient God, he's also a just God. And he's not going to allow us to stay there in our sin. What will either happen is you find out that you're not a believer, and you just love your sin more than God, and you've been faking it for a long time. Or you're going to find out that I am a believer. And so God's going to show up and he's going to discipline you because he loves you because a good father disciplines his kids. He doesn't allow his kids to just run around like crazy. So again, we reshape God into our own images, so to speak, which is exactly uh, where Paul finally lands in the text, right? He lands the plane on the reality of the coming judgment And the hope of the resurrected Jesus. At the end of the day, God's patience with us will run out. We will be judged by the one whom God rose from the grave. Verses 30 and 31. Now, while there are so many things that I think you could focus on in Paul's sermon to the Athenians. What he says about idolatry and repentance. That's the hook of his message. And especially verses 29 and 31. I want to read them verbatim just so you can feel the weight of them. This is where he ends his message. He says, hey. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance, God overlooked, He was patient. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now listen, if Paul would have just left out those final three verses, the people in Athens would have merely added Paul's message to the long list of philosophies that they loved to babble about as mere intellectual exercises. One of the things that drives me the absolute battiest in Christian culture is all the batting back and forth of a bunch of head nods. Well, did you know this? Or did you know that? Or did you know this? You know? And it's, like just a, it's just an argument of the intellect, even though I love intellectual superiority. It's a battle of the intellect with no change. No personal, hey, this is where this landed on me, and this needs to change about me. The Western church is it, it, like totally anemic because of that drives me nuts. The problem for the Athenians and for us is that Paul did include these last three verses, and those last three verses do require a response. You can either go back to your pursuit of pleasure, you can go back to your sticking your head in the sand like nothing's really wrong, or you can repent to begin living in true freedom, right? choice is yours. Good preachers actually are supposed to bring you to a point of decision with some kind of clear implication of the appropriate response, How we respond to the message is on us. No one can control our human response, but we are culpable for how we do respond. Think about it, how easy it would be for many people to respond by just going back to business as usual. Just, okay, the sermon's over. It was a little bit long-winded. Again. All right, I'm just going to go back to chasing pleasure. I'm going to go back to sticking my stinking head in the sand. how the athenians respond i think should challenge us when you look at the way that they respond it should help us to really think about what it looks like to respond to a call to have no other gods before the living god which is in our crucified risen returning savior so i want to touch on that in conclusion kind of want to leave us there in conclusion when you look at the athenians response um, to Paul's message. The Athenians responded in three different ways. Um, in verse 32, some of them mocked. As Some of the other ones in verse 32 procrastinated, right? And they said, hey, we'll, we'll hear you again about this. Okay, we've heard enough for today. I'll come back and hear you again next Sunday. Basically what they said. Uh, the other ones turned away from the idols and they joined Paul and believed. And so the question for all of us, as I started with at the beginning is which response will I be responsible for today? Am I a mocker who just goes back to what I was doing? In my mind, I see the mockers being the ones who go back to pursuing pleasure. They're like, this is not pleasurable. I'm going back to that. Like, that's, pursuing that's more fun. I'm out of here. See you, bro. Second camp, I believe it's the procrastinators, the ones who just stick their heads in the sand. I think these are the ones who are like, hey, I'm just going to wait for this for another day. I don't have to, I can just put off until tomorrow what I could do today. Or am I a believer? Am I a believer who repents as long as it is today, which is kind of the message of Hebrews. As long as it is today, you ought to respond appropriately. Doesn't matter at the end of the day if I'm guilty of chasing pleasure, doesn't matter if I'm guilty of sticking my head in the sand as a procrastinator. Either of those two idolatries can manifest themselves in various ways, right? Porn use, angry outbursts, control, manipulation in relationships, greedy with your time, your talent, your treasure, indifferent to the suffering around you, focused on climbing the corporate ladder, resistant to spiritual community. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on. I don't know where the Spirit of God is speaking to you now or where you've been in your relationship with God, but I'm certain that if... If you are in a relationship with Jesus, then your good father has been about a relationship with you that requires transformation. And that's what he wants in your life. He wants to see you continuously grow, transform, and become more and more like Jesus day by day. And if you're off just pursuing all the pleasurable pursuits in this world, you ain't growing to be like Jesus. Or if you're just off sticking your head in the sand, just doing the nine to five, then you're not going to be more like Jesus. And I think what our Father wants more than anything else is for us to look like Jesus. Because he gave his Son on our behalf, right? The greatest image that we can have, and I think the greatest experience we can have, is to think about that cross on the wall behind me. And to think about what happened on that image of that cross. It's to think about that blood that was shed. It's to think about that body that was broken horrifically. It's to think about how he did that on our behalf. It's to think about the, the truth of the empty tomb, that it, it's empty. Jesus rose victoriously over Satan, sin, and death to crush all of the idols that we might worship instead of our father. So that we might now be free to come into the presence of our father and become worshipers of our father in spirit and in truth. It's what, it's, it's what God wants. So the fruit of believing in the name of our crucified, risen, and returning Jesus is this. It's simply immediate and ongoing repentance. And the question is, what kind of Athenian will I be today? Will I be the kind that mocks, scoffs at it? (laughs) It's stupid. Just go on back to chasing the pleasures I was chasing before. Or will I be the procrastinator who says, "Eh, I've heard this all before, bro. I'll come back next Sunday, maybe, and hear it again. I'll think about it some more then." Or will you be the person who's like, "Yo, I got some real work to do in my life. Been going home, been pulling out some statues out of my closet, proverbially speaking. Been bowing down to them. Maybe it's a statue or the idol of family. Maybe it's sex and lust." maybe it's anger uh, maybe, maybe you, you just you really want comfort you, know, you really want acceptance you really want control over a chaotic life and it's been hard to trust a God that actually is in control in the midst of the chaos I don't know what it is for you but my hope is is that you're not one of the first two that you're not the one who goes I'm out I'm going to go pursue pleasure I'm out I'm going to go hide in the sand My prayer is that you would be one who says The kind of Athenian that I want to be today is the kind that goes, hey, here's what God's been after me for, and I want to repent of that. I want to ask him to change me, fill me with his spirit. So I'm going to pray for us that way, and then we'll we'll close out. Father, I do pray as we close.